Welcome to Olympian Method, everyone. My name is Sean. Uh, yeah, my name is Wolf, and uh, I like the name, by the way. It's uh, it suits us. Yeah, and good job on the graphic design, by the way. Oh, thank you. Well, uh, he was Wolf was asking me what colors to pick, and I'm like, well, is that red or green? <laughs> <laughs> And I'm colorblind, so mm. probably not the best th person to ask. Uh, you ask I'm, me about anything shape-related, I'm totally good with that. Yeah, and I'm not exactly a visual designer myself, so I just do what I can. Right, right. Well, this is the number one rule that on podcast. Always always make sure your, your phone is off and silent. Yeah. So, Wolf. All right. We, 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 we had broke some pretty abstract and heavy ground last time. We For sure. A lot of thought experiments that had to do with perception was reality defined by other people's perceptions or yours primarily? How do you give weight to each of those things? Mm -hmm. If if something if somebody can perceive something that other people can't, but is able to be perceived scientifically through instruments, we covered a lot of abstract topics, but I want to bring it sort of down to a more base level for this episode. Okay. Because, and I want to start it off with a question of, what do you define as strength? Ooh, that's... And does it differ from power? Okay. That's can, a... you, there's two separate questions, but a first one, what is strength? All right, let's, let's unpack the first one first, right? So to me, there can be two different kinds of strength, and I'm not sure which one you mean, so maybe I'll talk about both here. Um, so I think there's a physical form of strength, which is often equated with, say, your muscular ability is one way to measure it, or mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure there's other ways you could measure it, but that's what comes to my mind. Um, and then there, so it's like your physique is a main component in that. And then mm -hmm. there's the other form of strength, which is more of your mental strength. And that's measured in a lot of different ways, like your, your willpower, your toughness is a word sometimes people use for that, where you're willing to, you can persevere in certain circumstances that others cannot. Mm -hmm. And then your, your circumstances don't necessarily determine your mood might be another strength. There's a lot of ways of measuring mental strength. Mm -hmm. um, so... I think then your second question, the next question is about power, right? Right. And I think there's a lot of people who equate the form of the physical form of strength with power, but I think that's not entirely true because I think power is more about your ability to, to realize your will in the world. So mm. to, to make the world like be the way that you would will it to be or that you want it to be in your head. Does that make sense? And so right. you can use physical strength as an element of that if that strategy works for you, if you're in a society where that will give you an advantage over others mm. and they will obey you as a result of your physical strength, although that could be very tenuous and make you into, <laughs> into a dictator people don't like and you right. get overthrown. Um, but I think that the second one is actually more important to me for power, which is the ability to you to to build up strength in your mental facilities and to use those abilities to kind of make your will make your will uh, realized in the world. Right. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is if if you're mentally strong, you can apply that towards the gaining of physical strength. Yes, and that's yeah. I mean, there's actually a lot of overlap between those two because. Right, exactly as you're saying. Once once you're able to build up that willpower component of the the non physical strength, mm -hmm. that's that gives you the ability to repeat something in the physical world, which will give you build up the physical strength as well. So I think that skill is actually even more important than just raw muscle power. Right. Well, and I want to something I was thinking about in terms of strength. And that was a great answer, by the way. Oh. I, I, lo I love how you, I was totally off the cuff, basically. <laughs> 
man, the, the, the musician mind, the improvisation, it's, it's yeah. kicking in. Okay. You were a jazz musician, right? Yeah. I, I, uh, I played in, I played in jazz band, like in high school was my first exposure to, to real jazz, I guess. Uh, right. Bass player, by the way. <laughs> I mean, you, you sort of, did you, did you, when you were learning music and you were first starting out, did you apply that sort of, did you have any like mental tricks that you used to kind of motivate yourself or to push yourself to learning the instrument further? Or, I mean, did you think about it in terms of power or was it more just like, I can do this? Yeah. I don't know if there was ever like a power component in my head, but it, it definitely did build up mental facilities because the instrument I played was one of the few that like is almost entirely improvisational. Like you basically just get the chords that are in the, in the various, um, you know, uh, parts of the song. And then you kind of just have to make up a walking baseline that goes along with it for the most part, mm -hmm. uh, for a lot, large portions of it at least. And so I guess it also, it really helps you have to, you have to, you have to like fine tune some of your musical theory aspects more so than some of the others, mm -hmm. because like really knowing your scales, really knowing how to get in and out of certain chords and notes and things like that. So you're doing a lot. It's almost like you're doing sort of like, um, part writing from like the, the, the school I'm getting too far into music theory here, but mm -hmm. basically you're, you're doing the work of like composing basically like on the fly is, is what you're doing there when you're doing that style of improvisation. Okay. But, but that is in, in an essence sort of taking your, your, your intention and manifesting it in, in the world. I yeah. mean, you, you you don't really think about musicians as being powerful per se, like if they're talented, you just think well, of them as being competent, you, right? You, you do if you attribute them as being rock stars, right? That's a certain form of power that's associated with, but it's not, the power is usually not associated with their musical ability per se. Mm -hmm. It's more associated with the influence they have, the following they have, the crowds of people who are interested in them, their music and not necessarily because of the music itself, but it's often the personality behind. Mm-hmm personality and maybe their stage presence. I mean, it's, yeah. I actually wasn't planning on going down this road. It's just kind of naturally going there. <laughs> but like when you think of big rock bands like Led Zeppelin, for example, you think of them as like powerful, you right. know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, it shouldn't, shouldn't be lost on us that they used a lot of power chords. You know <laughs> what I mean? Maybe there's something to it being called a power chord. Could be. Could be. But the reason why it's called a power chord is the, the root and the fifth is the strongest musical relation between two intervals in music and it's also just in life in general like everything kind of resonates at the fifth degree like mm -hmm. whether it be a, a, a steel refrigerator or you know metal components in a room if, if you resonate it if you find its resonance frequency and then you play a fifth relative to that it actually will make the object resonate which is really interesting and i think we just lost half of our audience we did <laughs> but so back back to i, I mentioned something else uh, competence yes so how does Strength, power, and competence differ in your mind. Ooh. Um, so, well, I think we, we talked about strength and power a little bit, right? So mm -hmm. where does where does competence fit into right. the, the scheme of these things here? Um, that's a tough one. So let me try and unpack this. Mm -hmm. So I guess competence is... Competence is, is, is a related concept, right? Because it is about the ability to manifest uh, a certain skill. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's a difference in that you can manifest your skill without it necessarily impacting the world or, or necessarily like changing like the way the world operates. Right. So to me, competence is more about your ability to like express that uh, ability that you have. And it doesn't, it can in certain societies it can be attached with a certain amount of like 
what would you call it? Like a, like a social credit almost, or like a, mm. you know, you get a certain amount of street cred almost for competence in, in societies that are like meritocracies where they really value competence, mm-hmm. but it's not a guarantee that because you are competent. So that would be an example of where you might gain power through competence. Right. But it's, it's not a guarantee that having competence will gain you power necessarily. I think the two can be related, but they're definitely separate. Mm-hmm. Would you say that a measure that when you when you think of competence, you're really thinking about a cert, a very specific power dynamic, almost in a way? Yeah, it's 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 definitely more specific. Right, like perhaps you could think about it like you're a computer uh, coder by yeah. by trade. I, yeah, <laughs> I mean it, it would be relatively uh, how do I how do I say it agreeable to say that there are different levels of competence within your field. There are obviously people who are can are better at their job or, or, or are not as good at their job. And the same with anything, right? Yeah, and there well, there's there's also a, a a large diversity of skill sets that are needed too across the field. So you could be very competent in one area or with one technology, for example, mm-hmm. and not very competent with another. But it's really the it's it's the sum total of all of your competencies that kind of make up that. So it's almost competency is almost uh, it's it's so it's sociologically reliant it's it has almost has nothing to do with the individual competence yeah it's it's very contextual right because mm-hmm. i could be a very competent like let's say programmer right but if for some reason all like programming goes away if robots ai replace all programming and now it turns out that all we need are like farmers again for some reason some society that happens in the future well, i'm pretty terrible at farming suddenly i'm not a very competent person so it's very contextual to like what is the societal needs right right but I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I can, sh- I can think of an instance where farmers might need a computer programmer and mm-hmm. maybe, and maybe an exchange of goods and services happens, right? Maybe. Right. Well, that's the thing. I mean, obviously I think there's, uh, without getting too much into the e- economics of it and, and your own personal earnings, which I will not ask, <laughs> but on, in general, usually computer engineers make a lot more money than the average farmer, right? Right. And in, in general, there, you know, there are, there's much more growth within the like computer programming community than there is within the farming community. So there's, there's more of us and there's way more there. And the reason for that is that there's much more demand than there is supply of, mm-hmm. of that type of labor. That is true. So I have another question about strength. So, so you've kind of, we've kind of cracked the egg, so to speak of this strength, power, competence yeah. dynamic, but you know, when you think of a, an inanimate object, like just a physical object, mm-hmm. and you try to think of its strength, like what what do you like? If you think of steel, for example, what mm. what makes steel so strong? What like how how can you re- define strength of steel in other terms? Yeah, uh, it's it's hard to define in a positive way. It's really hard to define in a positive way. It's it's easier to define in terms of what it's not. So mm. like, for example, one of the ways I think of steel as being strong is that it is how difficult it is to bend. Right? right. It's resistance to change. Right. And it's when you think of strength, it's often very difficult to describe it in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Well, because so like, for example, the earth is probably the, the strongest physical thing that we have have at our fingertips right now. Right. It's, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to move to move the earth. Right. And unless all seven billion people jump at the same time, then I think you move the earth like at a <laughs> like a nanometer or something like that. Right. But th- that'll never happen. But it 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 makes me think of strength um, of Stoic philosophy because you mentioned the ability to endure pain. It makes me think of Navy SEALs. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we've both read Jocko 
Willink Extreme Ownership. Yep. If you were to ask the average audience, and audience, please please feel free to participate. If you think of an individual or a group of people that you consider strong, you know, I think of Navy SEALs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's it's they're they're almost the archetypical like strong-willed person in our in well at least in American society. I feel like right, but it, they also are kind of a continuing legacy of like you know, the Spartan warriors, you know, the samurai, oh, for sure. you know, they, they they're, they're, yeah, they've been elite warriors over time. They, they just happen to have a particular relevance in our modern society. Yeah. Now what's interesting is you can, you can say that obviously they're very physically powerful and they're also able to withstand a lot of pain and everything like that. Sure. But you know, they're, they're also very, very competent mm-hmm. and, and they're also very strong as well. They're very hard to move. Right. Right. Now, the question I want to ask is, is that a good thing? Is it a good thing to be strong? Well, ben, you almost, to answer that, I almost have to, we almost have to talk about what does it mean to be good, right? Right. And I, don't, I don't know. Do we want to go down that rabbit hole right now? Yes. Well, I think you were saying you were getting into some Frederick Nietzsche a little bit, right? Well, uh, just, a, just a little bit. Yeah. I, I can't say I'm any expert on that. Okay. Were you, were you reading Beyond Good and Evil? I haven't yet, but I've, I've, I've heard of that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think what it means to be good is almost like asking what the meaning of life is. Mm, Because if you have to choose between looking at life as being completely against you and almost like created by a great deceiver, like Descartes would say, like, Mm -hmm. you know, he he had the thought of, what if the world is just created by a demon meant to deceive me? And it's like, I was thinking about it on the way over here and that can lead to nihilism really, really quick. Yeah. And we were, we were talking about the problems with like, um, radical skepticism, which was, you know, the, the basic premise that I talked about towards the second half of the last, uh, episode. Right. I forget what number that was in your, in your, like your four possibilities of looking at the world and analyzing. Oh, the first one was, was accepting skepticism and, and basically believing that nothing is, you know, important, like nothing matters and nothing is real or any of that. Right. And obviously that's not very pragmatic. It's, it's, it's better to think of life itself as being good and anything that furthers the existence of life as being good. Right. right. But it, it's, it's funny because we don't realize that we, we actually have, we have, uh, we have thoughts in our head that we don't necessarily realize are paradoxical to that. Right. And, and, and that brings me back to power and strength. Cause obviously if you have an individual who's power hungry and like a megalomaniac, egomaniac, anything like that, and they're in a position of say, you know, power, whether it be in a, in a, in a business or mm-hmm. in, in a government structure, it, it can very really quickly deteriorate. We've seen that happen throughout history. Oh, for sure. So, I mean, especially in the last century, right? The 20th century was awful. I mean, you had Hitler, you had Stalin, you had Pol Pot. I mean, yeah. uh, basically no country has been without its sort of, how do, how do I say it? It's, it's demagogue or it's, it's uh, dictator, yeah. essentially. So my question is, how do you know if a competency hierarchy has become corrupt? Uh, well, and it's okay to not know. I mean, yeah, I, I, I guess it would be tough. If, it's tough for me to answer that, but I, I, taking a grasp at it, I think you could, you could look at, it depends on how you find corruption, but mm-hmm. I think you can talk corrupted about, by power, I should say. Okay. So power outside of the competence range. So hmm, outside of interesting. Um, so let's say some, like an example, someone gets a, a promotion in the computer coding field. Yeah when they're less comp- less competent at somebody else, but maybe they're more physically strong or they're better looking, or maybe they're like 
manipulative to the boss or something like that, verbally manipulative. Like, yeah. So this is very difficult to measure, but I mean, I, let me, let me give you a, a, like a utilitarian answer, which is okay. one that comes to mind, which is like whether the, the power, the, what did you call it? The higher, the social hierarchy or something like the that? Competence hierarchy. The competence hierarchy. If, if the competence hierarchy is, um, working to the benefit of the, uh, let's just say majority or some, you know, most of, if not all of those participating in it. That's, that's kind of, that's very difficult to measure, but that's mm -hmm. one way to, you could utilize whether it's corrupted or not. Right. Right. So what, so whether there's a sort of a, a, a flow of mutual benefit happening, an economy almost with. Right. The... Well, I, mean, I guess maybe there's a, there's a step before that, which is, first of all, is it sustainable? Right. Can it, right. can it, does it actually have a, like a fundamental flaw that's going to collapse in on itself? And we've seen societies like that. Right. That well, have I, not lasted very long. Well, I can think of an example, right? So let's say, you know, there was a martial arts dojo that, um, you know, uh, basically allowed people to fight for the death, even white belts, you know, that would be a problem because all the white belts would get killed off by the black belts really quickly. And then you'd have no more students to learn. You know, sure. No, no one, no we, one to teach. It, it's been socially acceptable to like fight to resolve situations through like duels until not that long ago. If you think about the, the grand scheme of things, right? Yeah. Actually, one of my friends back from Indiana, who I think I've, I've mentioned, mm -hmm. one of the things he mentioned in his last podcast that I did with him was, you know, he was asked the question by his wife, if there was one rule that you could change about society, what would it be? And, and he said, it would be that, you know, um, men could resolve conflicts by duels mm -hmm. or anybody could resolve conflicts by duels. Mm -hmm. And actually in Washington, side note, this is completely tangent. In Washington state, there's a, a mutual combat uh, clause in the law. So two people can actually agree to um, physical combat mm -hmm. and, not, and not suffer any like legal consequences from mm -hmm. it. As long as it's mutually agreed upon. Interesting. Which... So, so back to the power dynamic. So, so that, that actually gets, that gets back to the first definition of power, which is just, you know, basically who's stronger than the other person wins. And that's kind of, I think where we started as a society, but that's mm -hmm. kind of what we see as uncivilized given the social norms of today. Right. Well, it, you can think it's certainly, well, I'm going to be relativistic here. Okay. You could say that it's a lot less socially faux pas for a man to fight a man than it is for a man to fight a woman. <laughs> There's a, there's a certain social, yeah, connotation to that. Yeah. But what's interesting is, so I want, one of my primary sources for today, the reason why I bring up power, competency, and strength is, you know, I've been, you've been reading Jordan Peterson's book or listening to it. I, right? I've, I've listened to some of it. Yes. He, he talks a lot about the uh, concepts of power dynamics, but in relation to, to competency, et cetera, and everything like that. Mm -hmm. So my question is, do you, do you think that, you know, if there was a sort of allowance of, how do I say it, physical, a, a measured physical conflict between individuals that society would actually benefit from that? It's difficult to say whether it would be a, a net benefit on society per se. Mm -hmm. I could, you could probably imagine there might be some benefits from that um, because, it, well, yeah, it, it's it's difficult to say how that would affect our modern culture because my only like, or my my best my best points of reference are sort of more historical at this point in terms of what societies that created. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting question about how that would work in our modern society. Right. Well, because as as, as it, it seems that when people's ability to communicate breaks down, yeah, the only thing that's left is is really no other word for it, but violence mm -hmm. or, and, and yeah. And there it, are different levels of violence. There's, right. And it, you know, up until recently, and you could even say implicitly today still that when you, when you analyze power, 
there's a theory. I don't actually subscribe to this like so so much myself, but there's a theory that as you unpack the the like raw elements or even the motivations behind power, eventually you'll get down to there's a threat of violence or a threat of use of force somewhere because it usually ends up getting down to the police, you know, the state somewhere will enforce it with violence if necessary or by taking away your freedom, throwing you in jail. There's some threat mm-hmm. of some nature of physical force ultimately at the end of it right and that's true and, and that's one of the benefits i think of western society is that we've uh, outsourced the need for resolution of violent conflict right but to i the think state. as as we've abstracted on top of that that's where we've become more and more civilized where we can resolve well before getting to the point of needing to use that that uh you know physical force right right it you know when you think of strength and power and competency, obviously you think of leaders, right? And sure. Extreme ownership is a big part of that. Mm-hmm. So back back to the whole essence of conflict, you know, we, we've we've both studied, I'd say, Jordan Peterson a little bit. He's ha- he's had some commentary on other animal species and how they deal with power dynamics. <laughs> We're going to talk about lobsters, aren't we? What was oh, lobsters, rats, and, Rat, and, yeah. and chimpanzees? Okay, which which you want to do? Which you uh, want to well, take? I, I you said that you what really stuck out to you from one of his lectures was his. Uh, his uh, the study of from Yang Peng Sept the rats the, okay. rat, the rat study measuring how they play yeah I remember that so uh, do 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 you, you want to uh, elaborate on that do you think there's some wisdom in that that can be reflective of human nature perhaps well there I don't remember the whole thing but the part about it I remember is that um, you know rats when they when they play um, you know when they pair off against each other the, obviously typically the the the, the more uh, the one that's bigger the stronger will end up winning right right and then the the weaker one will usually have to ask the stronger one to initiate like play in the in the, after that and what's what's interesting is if i remember correctly that the the weaker rat will actually won't want to keep playing unless they win was it 30% i think of the 30% time 30% of the time so they have to feel like they're playing a fair game which i guess that's the minimum threshold you have to f- win enough of the time that you feel like you actually have a chance at the game right and that's why we have weight classes in the ufc <laughs> <laughs> i don't think rats have weight classes no they don't well that was another side note on the method of the study they, they i think they had one rat be 15% larger than the other one to yeah. guarantee that the one rat could could always win. That, oh, okay. was, that was what was needed to ensure like 100% victory. Okay. But yeah. what they found was that the rats actually let the big rat let the little rat win, win about 30% of the time. That is interesting. Because if the game stops being played, then everyone ceases to benefit. Right. And so what's interesting is when you relate that back to humans, you, you might think that's totally unrelated, but when you think about it, like life is for us is really just a series of games that we play by whatever rules we agree to, right? Right. And I think the way that we form those rules is around what we consider fairness and some notion of that fairness is the the way that we don't that we guarantee that like it's not just pure physical strength that's going to guarantee that you know mm-hmm. certain certain individuals win right right well obviously your ability to deadlift has no uh, <laughs> merit as far as your ability to play chess or win a spelling bee well yeah <laughs> right and th- there's there's no way for that to be a confounding variable I'm not sure exactly where I was going with that, but it's just kind of... High- yeah, I mean, we, we don't usually organize our societies around either of those things, but... No, we don't. So, okay. So, uh, reading reading through uh, Peterson's book, 12, 12 Rules for Life, um, he, he, ha- he has a couple of rules that I feel like have... Let's just say they coalesce really well in my mind. One okay. of them was rule two, which was treat yourself as if you're somebody that you're responsible for taking care of. And the other one was rule five. By the way, that, that kind of reminds me of the, um, 
I'm not sure how they say this, but you know, it's been a long time since long time since I've been in an airplane. But the last time I was in, I think they said something about when the uh, masks, you know, descend from overhead, mm-hmm. secure your mask before helping others. Right. Kind of kind of reminds me of that. Well, I I think there is, and it's some... it's also an element of like the golden rule, right? About treating you know treating others the way you would be treated. The golden rule. I I mean, you can pretty much break down almost all moral philosophy down to that. It kind of covers all the bases. It's basically the checkmate. <laughs> you know, once once you. I mean, I'm actually glad you brought up golden rule because I think it simplifies everything. You know, you have all all of these crazy dynamics in society. You have people competing, but you also have people cooperating. Right. But it's like treating other people the way you want to be treated. And it's like, well, I wouldn't want somebody to, I would think at first, instinctually, I wouldn't want someone to say, kick my butt in jujitsu right off the bat. Yeah. Like, there's no benefit for me. But if I knew that that was going to help me learn, I would want somebody to beat me in jiu-jitsu. I won't want somebody to tap me out or put yeah, me in an that, armbar. That, that, I think that gets into the notion of, I don't know, maybe we should like change topics here. I'm not sure where you're going with this, but I was going to just add to that the notion of uh, the ability to recognize that sacrificing something in the present will give you benefits in the future. And that's, there's many ways that we've discovered that. And one of those is through, like you're saying, like training and things like that. Yeah. Which I guess you could say is a measure of strength. Are you willing yeah. to forsake the now a little bit of the now endure a little bit of pain now for the yeah and I, I, that, I think that's the most important aspect of willpower is that ability to make sacrifices that will benefit you in the long run mm-hmm. so yeah and treating yourself as if you're somebody that you're responsible for it's almost like i i like to think of it as you're making a deal with your future self yeah you know you, you're but, making... yeah but but future me what has that guy ever done for me <laughs> dude he, he's helping you out right now <laughs> as, just as much as your past self is my mind was still a little uh turned turned around from our time travel discussion last time I oh, was, okay i was a little bit yeah a, a little bit rattled but here's another measure of strength though stoicism okay yeah so that's why i kind of brought up steel you know when you think of the steel man argument you try to make your <laughs> your opponent's argument seem as strong as possible right right but in Stoicism, it's founded primarily on not being reactive. I've been started to read The Obstacles Away, by the way. Thank you for recommending that book to me. Very good introduction, yeah. It talks about uh, Rockefeller and how he, when every, when during the, uh, the there was an oil crisis where everyone was speculating and, you know, kind of, kind of the equivalent of like the Wall Street mayhem that you're seeing nowadays. Mm-hmm. You know, he kept a cool head and, you know, didn't didn't go with certain investors and, and made the logical decision. And he ended up being one of the richest men in the world as a result. Right. So... I, I suppose we've, we've kind of briefly mentioned extreme ownership, 12 rules for life, and obstacles the way, and stoicism. N- none of which we are affiliated with, right? None of which we're affiliated with. This is not a paid-for or a sponsored podcast. No, no. No, we're just, <laughs> we just like these books. But w- what struck me, and the reason why I've, I've been kind of setting all this up, I've been kind of moving these little pawns on the chessboard into position here during this podcast, is, you know, I've heard people review these books and say, oh yeah, you know, they're, they're a good read. It makes sense. But I haven't heard too many people talk about their experiences with how these books have directly impacted them or how they've inspired change. Mm. So have, have you had any, um, how do I say it? Inspiration from these books that have led to changes in behavior? Yeah. Uh, let's, let's see, let's see how deep we want to go here. Um, I, I think, um, my own, from my own personal experience, the, the biggest has been, let's just say, you know, I've been through a situation that a lot of the rest of the world has been through where I've had to be in isolation for close to a year now, I think it's been. That sounds awful. 
Wait, you you had to go through this? Well, yeah, I mean, I know I'm, I'm not sarcastic, guys. <laughs> I know I know a bunch of people who have, but I mine was like one of the more acute cases. So for me, what what happened was early on during during this experience, um, I really underestimated myself. I guess is what I could say, um, mm-hmm. since I'm traditionally I kind of I I guess I guess I'm kind of an ambivert, you know, kind of a little bit of introvert and extrovert. So I figured, oh, I'll just swing towards introvert. I'll just enjoy being by myself, you know, for a while. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's problems with that. So that that works well. and, And this goes back to control. That works well when when you have like control and power over like when you have social experiences, right? Because it gives you the ability to unwind when you are kind of overloaded from those experiences. But we all are social creatures. We all have some need for that. It's just everyone has different styles that they like to sort of realize that need in, right? Right. And sorry, were you going to say something? And, I, and on a side note, I actually prefer one-on-one conversations the most as, as a form of social interaction, but continue. Okay, yeah. I, I, for me, it depends on several factors. But anyways... So I, I figured, oh, well, you know, I'll just enjoy being by myself. And <laughs> and that didn't work out so well. So <laughs> basically um, what happens with that is um, you, yeah, this is, this is, this, this might get a little bit, a little bit tough for me to I'm sorry, go man. too much detail on, but I, I, here, I'll, I'll take over. So okay. uh, I, I think everyone can relate to, to, to the feeling that isolation brings. Yeah. And I just recently got over, uh, uh, having to do a 14 day quarantine and I was mm. just starting to do jujitsu. I was starting to do all of these things like coming out of my shell again, you know, and I was like, I moved back to my apartment. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, throughout the whole quarantine, I was living with my folks though. So I never really got the sort of isolation. Yeah. And that, it's, it's funny you mentioned 14 days cause it was the first two weeks that were really the toughest for me, I think. Yeah. Because it it was a it was a combination of not i guess that the problem was not only the factor of me being alone by myself with my own thoughts which is kind of already like dangerous enough as it is but it was also the additional like almost paranoia that came down on me from the circumstances that caused the isolation that made me fearful to even go outside to experience the world to mm-hmm. interact with anyone else Right. So the combination of those two things can lead to some very dark places is what right. I'm trying to get, get at here. Where you, where you really desire to want to see other people, but you also, you, you don't want to get, catch anything or give anything to anybody else, so right. to speak. Yeah. So it took me about two weeks. And, and so the, the problem, the, the, the manifestation or kind of the symptoms of that for me ended up being like basically a loss of like structure and order in my life mm-hmm. to a large degree. And I ended up having like virtually no sleep schedule. It's kind of like <laughs> in and in and out of a fog of consciousness throughout much of those two weeks. Oh, that's, you're, you're describing my last two weeks, man. Oh, <laughs> and, and, and because, because during that time I was, I was still working, but my hours were not set. And I was, because I wasn't going into an office and I was doing all my work from home, mm-hmm. that meant that I had almost no structure enforced upon me. Mm-hmm. And so that just led to even like more of a downward spiral in terms of me not sticking to a very rigorous schedule. I, at first I thought the freedom was going to be great. Right. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize that like that freedom was also paired with like all of this, you know, it's, <laughs> it came along with all this baggage. Right. 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 Did, and did to, you clean your room? 
I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say I did. I definitely let things get into disorder for quite a bit during those two weeks. And it, it took me about that long to like, I, I definitely didn't hit any form of rock bottom. Like some people have I, like there was, there was definitely some form of depression during there for, for, for sure. But oh, yeah. I, but I, I didn't hit like the lows that I know some people have experienced, but I hit enough of a low that I built the strength and willpower. And we can talk about how that happened. This is a lot of, cause I, I've been studying stoicism, but I hadn't really been applying it to my life too much until this point, to be honest with you. And right. so that was the point where I basically realized that I had to start by enforcing like structure in my life again mm -hmm. and it started with like going to sleep and waking up at a relatively consistent time mm -hmm. and even like putting on the same clothes that i would normally wear like during the work day right picking a spot that was like designated for work and not just like like working from anywhere in my apartment and then it started to finally like fall into place right that's that's a, that's a beautiful story, man. Thank I actually I have, I have a blog post that goes into some of the details of this. By the way, maybe we can link it if it helps. Absolutely, please. Uh, we'll, we'll link it in the description to the to the podcast for okay. Spotify and YouTube for everyone yeah. listening. Um, great story, man. I, I I can really relate to to that. And mm -hmm. thank you, by the way, for showing me obstacles away. That was actually a really like I think it was the final piece of the puzzle mm. for me in many ways because you know when I was doing the two weeks. I sort of disappeared into a similar disarray that you did. Yeah. But the way I coped with that is, um, I basically disappeared into music for eight hours a day. Mm. Yeah. For some reason, the funny thing about that is I, I didn't reach for music at that time. For some reason, mm -hmm. I, that part of me just wasn't, wasn't interested, even though normally in other circumstances, I would be so mm -hmm. interested in music. I think part of what I realized what I was searching for was, um, I was I was seeking to not be alone because with the energy that was around me, mm -hmm. I like creating the music almost is, it feels like an entity in its own sometimes. Right, and the, the the struggle for me once I realized that ultimately like I wasn't uh, well, it, it was actually several different phases kind of right because at first it was like I felt I thought I deceived myself to think oh I'm okay being alone. I quickly realized no I'm not okay being alone, mm -hmm. and then at that point I thought then then i was like i want to be with people then then i went through a different phase which is like i'm afraid to be with other people this is mm -hmm. because of the circumstances of why i'm isolated at the time mm -hmm. and then there's like an acceptance at the end which is almost you know like the, the stages of grieving or whatever where it's like finally you actually accept you have to actually accept that you're okay with being alone yeah that that's the hardest part it, it really is and i think there is a difference between being alone and being lonely yes but Back to rule two, where, you know, treat yourself as if you're somebody that you're responsible for. It's almost like there's two selves in the mind when you think about it that way. Mm -hmm. And what I realized is I was sort of hiding from, I guess you could say it might, my, my, don't want to call it my tyrannical self, mm -hmm. but, but the side of myself that plans and everything like that, I was hiding from that. I was hiding from myself. I realized that what I was really afraid of was, was being alone, was being alone with myself, mm -hmm. like having, having the thoughts that I might have, like what I, what I might know about myself. Because when you, what's so interesting is when you're completely alone, you don't know other people, but when you're around people all the time, it kind of does prevent you from knowing about yourself to a deeper degree. Yeah. And I think it's especially true in like our modern society. If, if you're very connected, but you feel like you're very connected on things like social media, mm -hmm. where you're just getting bombarded with updates and people's lives and things like that. And so you, you feel, you think you're connected it's a very artificial and superficial type of connection. But what's even worse than that is because your mind is being bombarded with all these ideas, you, it's very 
rarely actually still enough for you to contemplate, meditate, whatever you want to, you know, mm -hmm. to, to think thoughts that are truly genuinely your own. Right. And the biggest struggle for me was actually learning how to meditate throughout this entire pandemic. Mm -hmm. I think I'd mentioned the Art of Living Foundation. I've had yeah. multiple, the teacher has been so kind in reaching out to me being like, where'd you go, Sean? We haven't <laughs> seen you in a while. And I'm, I told her, I just haven't been able to meditate recently. It's just been hard for me to sit and, and be with myself. Mm -hmm. and, and I think I think our society in general has gotten so used to interfacing with whether it be technology or social media or even other people in person. You know, it's it's the one thing that we've always had ourselves is finally we have to spend so much time with that person mm. in a way. And we have to try to get to know ourselves as if we are alone. And that's... Um, yeah, and, that, and what's funny about that is you don't realize how painful and like um yeah i guess I, you because the thing is like you you know yourself and you know all of your own faults you especially mm -hmm. you know the ways that you fall short of like your own standards right right well, what, and, did you, what did you say before we did the podcast you know who, who needs enemies when you have like have yourself as a friend oh yeah yeah who needs friends who needs sorry enemies with a you know when with with friends like yourself who needs enemies yeah. right exactly right so um what, what i what i'm getting at with that is that you can sort of push those things to the back of your mind if you've got other people's thoughts in your head right mm -hmm. it's like a it's like a poor substitute for not needing to think any of the dark thoughts that are actually going on inside your head mm-hmm and like push them down kind of kind of subconscious level i guess you would say yeah and but the thing is once you take all those other things out that's the stuff that rises right to the top well gosh i mean i don't know what you would call those call those thoughts i don't know how you'd categorize it but i think it's um hmm i am kind of at a loss for words right now i mean because because going, because going back to that time when I was isolating, it was like I didn't have to think. Mm -hmm. You know, my brain's going back there, and I think that's why I'm at a loss for words. It's like I didn't, I didn't have to like say anything to anybody, but I could hear my thoughts in my head. They were so loud, and yeah, I, I had a journal that I had written maybe 15 pages in, in the course of a year, and during the pandemic, I almost filled it up <laughs> completely. Nice. So it's it had had tons of thoughts, but. This just goes back to the obstacles, the way, mm -hmm. you know, many, the, 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 the extreme ownership philosophy, you know, Peterson talks about this a lot and obstacles, the way Stoke philosophy, it all kind of serves the same purpose. There's so much overlap and they have a core central message, which is that you are responsible for yourself. Right. Yeah. And I, I think I'll, I'll, there's a lot of ways you can think about Stoic philosophy because it's, it's kind of like a whole, it's a, it's an entire way of thinking and like a mindset and even like, um, sort sort of like a paradigm for life in a, in a way. So mm -hmm. it's, it's actually kind of hard to boil it all down to like something that you can convey in like a short soundbite. But mm -hmm. the closest I've ever seen is actually a variation on, I, I think you might know this from recovery programs is the serenity prayer. Mm -hmm. And so the, Correct me if I'm wrong, because I might be misremembering this, but it's uh, grant me the 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 oh, is it is it uh, wisdom to sorry go go sorry it's so so they say God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change yes the wisdom to no accept the things I cannot change uh, the courage to change the things I can and then the wisdom, wisdom to, to know the difference. difference yes okay so that that so starting from that um, it's 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 a big part of basically um, knowing what things are under your control and not caring about the things that aren't under your control. And 
what's what's unique about stoic philosophy or what, what kind of takes it to the next level is that you kind of have to buy you're, you start to buy into the notion that like the only things that are in your control are like within you and basically the entire external world is not within your control and you have to sort of let go of it in, in a large part mm-hmm. well in many ways you can you know it's it's a crazy thought experiment so imagine this imagine you are responsible for all the world's problems <laughs> Like everything, no, literally, like just through some random metaphysical event, you, Wolf, or if you speaking to me, me, Sean, are responsible for everything, good and bad in the world. I mean, so you're like God in a way, right? It's it's a God thought experiment. So, yeah. but but tying in, it's a metaphysical experiment tied in with extreme ownership. Yeah. Right. So it's right. like if you were responsible for all the world's problems, you know, what was what is the smallest thing that you could do to make it a little bit better? Hmm. Make, make it make it better f- like for for everyone or for, for yourself for, or? for for everyone but i mean like standing like it can be as simple as walking around with your shoulders back straight and mm-hmm. sta- standing up tall you know right you know um petting a cat when you see one on the street right you know um making friends with people who want the best for you and also being friends with people whom you want the best for mm. i think you know it's yeah treating yourself like someone you take care of exactly <laughs> and cleaning your room exactly <laughs> extreme ownership it, it's you know the 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 podcast the theme of this podcast was really just kind of about personal experience Mm -hmm. you know and learning from people's experience like listening and you know when i listen to you i hear a lot of my story and i hope that when i speak you hear you hear some of mine yeah yeah there's a lot of wisdom in 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 books like this but it doesn't mean anything unless you put it yeah into practice and and so one of the thing I, i wanted to like sort of connect back to my experiences there and and sort of my opinion of how stoic philosophy sort of is built as a system. A lot of it too is around your value judgment. Mm. And so there, there's, a, there's a quote by Shakespeare that I, I like to sort of explain this, which is, you know, neither good nor bad thinking makes it so. Mm-hmm. And it is so true. And th- to me, this is like the most important part of extreme ownership and also of the whole stoic philosophy. It's like the world just is as it is. Mm-hmm. And so the ownership you take is not necessarily over the world being as it is, because obviously you're not omnipotent, mm-hmm. but what you do have power over is the interpretation of whether it's good or bad, right? And th- there's, mm-hmm. there's, you might say there's quotes from Jocko about just re- responding that everything is just good. good. <laughs> <laughs> I knew we were going to do that. In, in, I know. I, th- I saw it coming my yeah. whole way. But, but I mean, it's, it's so true though, because there's so much, and we talked about this in the whole, in the last episode about uh, perspective and perception and just so much of how you perceive the world is filtered and influenced by your own views. And it's not necessarily corresponding to the real world. It's, it's the value and the meaning that you give to it. Right. Like you could think about it like, oh my God, I'm hallucinating. Good. <laughs> There's meaning to be had in that. Right. You know, it's an opportunity to grow. Or, or, or you could think about it, I'm seeing something that's actually there. Well, well, good. Maybe you can use it to your advantage. You know, right. you know. You, you, let's say you think there's a huge problem. Like there's so many people on social media who think there are so many problems in the world, and maybe half the time they're real, half the time they're not. I don't know. <laughs> but it's like a, a, a pragmatic thing, regardless of who it is. Good. There's a problem. What's the way to fix it? Mm-hmm. And being open to solutions. I, I think the whole my idea of good is it immediate immediately opens you up to the possibility of finding solutions Mm. because if you if you say bad you know you're like uh it's like yeah well it's also like 
you know, if, if, if the world, if, if everything's not your fault in like some manner, if you don't play at least a part in that, if mm -hmm. it's all just the universe is the way it is, then there's no way for you to fix it. Right. So mm -hmm. that's the problem with that mentality. And so that's why, yeah, it's a little extreme to go all the way to the other end of like, you know, you own everything, like everything is within your control, or at least everything is like part of your value system of whether, you know, being good or not. But the alternative just is it, it takes away all your power. And I, I think we'd better, it's better for us to think of the world in a way in which we have that free agency. Right. And, and I think we're all, where Jocko and Peterson overlap too, is they really want their readers to have power over themselves. Yes. You know, and, and not like in a tyrannical way. I, I, Jordan Peterson talks about that explicitly. Like you don't want to like be a tyrant with yourself and like put yourself down for not doing the things that you're supposed to do. Right. Because that just creates a negative feedback loop of thoughts. That's how depression starts. That's how anxiety starts. Been you know? there. <laughs> Been there too. Still in it sometimes. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, so it's all, it's all about really being kind and accepting. We kind of talked about that a mm -hmm. little bit last episode, the, the whole theme of acceptance. But yeah, you know, I'll... I'll, I'll but yeah, I, I think we're taking it to like a whole nother level now. Yeah. So back to the thought experiment of God, it's like, you know, if, if I, if I was God right now and I was responsible for all, all the, all the pain and suffering in the world, like mm -hmm. what, what would be one thing that I could do better right now? Right. The first thing I can think of is don't lie. Yeah. Tell the truth or at least don't lie. That was because it's so hard to tell the truth because that philosophical question of what is the truth is, is yeah is, the, the 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 problem with reducing that to just don't lie yeah. is that that still leaves the possibility of withholding the truth right like secrets yeah you know i i, I wrote i wrote in my journal once that it, it's so interesting when you think about the idea of trust right mm -hmm. like say i i tell you something that i don't want anyone else to know except which, which i wouldn't do on this podcast <laughs> except the whole listeners <laughs> but if i entrust something to you and be like hey you know don't don't tell this to anybody else kind of thing you know yeah we can trust you right that but that here's the thing that element of trust is based on you keeping a secret from everybody else mm -hmm. so 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 in a way it, it but if you if you tell the truth of what i've told you to other people in a way that's deceiving me in right a way. So it's, 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 it's almost yeah, like, so it, it, that, that gets back to the much earlier question you would ask about corruption and like whether, um, competency hierarchies are corrupt or not. And part of that too, is whether it's like beneficial to the, the overall group. Right. Mm -hmm. And one of the, one of the ways that that has, one of the ways that that manifests itself is by trust, mm -hmm. you know, between, cause if, if the different actors or different characters or, you know, players in that game, if they don't trust each other, you're not going to build up a very successful uh, society over that. Right. Because if nobody can trust each other, that just leads people to behaving as if it's a state of nature. <laughs> right. And, and seeing it, life as brutish and short and a competition between all individuals at all times. Right. You know, so it's good to tell the truth. Well, and, and I think, I think it's, it's, it's a simple truth whenever I, and I think sometimes we can forget the truth sometimes. So mm -hmm. an exercise, this is more just kind of a exercise I like to do, but whenever I'm writing and, I, and I'm kind of figuring out, man, what's going on in the world? I'll start with a simple truth. Like I'm here in my room, mm -hmm. you know, I'm sitting down, the sun is out, I'm breathing oxygen, you know, and it's yeah. like, it, it, that creates its own positive feedback loop. I start with these small, simple truths. And if I keep writing, eventually I get to some sort of insight that seems like it could be truthful. Yeah, that, that is it, not so mundane and innocuous. Yeah, I mean that that kind of reminds me of what you talked about in the last episode about having like a mantra that you start mm -hmm. from that you sort of repeat, and then 
I, I wonder if you, I mean, obviously I don't want you to share any like, you know, right. Spiritual <laughs> secrets here, but yeah. if there's anything to the process of, of sort of how you go from that to building up like, you know, more, um, like higher levels of thinking. Well, it's, and I think this goes back to religious dogma or mm -hmm. how religion, religious ideas become dogmatic is, you know, these like the Lord's prayer in Christian tradition. Right. I don't know any prayers in, in the Islamic tradition, but I, I'm sure I could look them up. Mm -hmm. But when you repeat these mantras and you, you, you develop a pattern around them and then you see all of life happen before and after those mantras, if you make that, if you make that the pinnacle of your transcendent experience to experience those, to just say those mantras and bring them into being, and then all of reality happens around that, it becomes very difficult for your mind to dissociate what's happening around you from the mantra itself. Hmm. We're very bad at determining causality. We can see correlations. Yes. We can see that the sun has been rising every single day since the day that we were born. But, you know, at the same time, that's based on our experience. I was actually thinking on the way here. Yeah. We know there's 7 billion people in the world, right? But have you ever seen 7 billion people? Yeah, I was going to say, do we actually know that? <laughs> yeah, that was one of the things. But but it gets back to another point. Isn't I mean, well, it's it's more like we know that there are, well... I mean, I know at least you probably have similar experiences. Mm. We know that there can be large crowds of people in certain populated areas mm -hmm. and we visited, there's, you know, multiple populated areas and we've kind of abstracted from that, the, the vastness of like the population of the earth. Right. But we don't ever actually experience that. Right. And, and, and if we do, it's usually through the internet and, and social media and right. it's a very diluted and um, derivative form of, of, of relating to people. Mm -hmm. But I mean, <laughs> I'm not, I just kind of lost my train of thought there for a moment, but it, it just kind of goes to show is it's like, it, it is important to base your idea of truth off of what you can perceive first and foremost. Mm. I think that's the kind of the crux of what I'm getting at. Here. Yeah. Well, I mean, to some degree, that's to start off, that's all we have initially, right? Until we build up any levels of abstraction that are higher than that. Right. Like a mathematical formula or a, yeah. or a doctrine or something like that. But, but back to your point about the spiritual phenomena where it's like, yeah, it's a repeatable thing that all, everything kind of follows, you know, it, it does help. I've started getting back into it in the past, actually just last night, I tried doing the mantra and it did help, but they do say you have to keep doing it over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually something that's beneficial about religion is it does give people a sort of a central point with which their lives revolve around. It gives them a point of consistency of absolute Lutinous, you know? Yeah. And it, it also, um, it, it, it kind of, it helps to provide a framework for that notion of being willing to sacrifice right mm -hmm. in the now for the benefit in the future. That's kind of like the ultimate expression of that sort of that narrative, if you will, is built, right. built into the, to religion. So I think that the, one of the reasons that's given rise to it and why it still maintains its popularity to this day is its usefulness in sort of ingraining that into our culture. Right, right. And I, I think there's, there's certain parts of society that have found other ways to sort of uh, gain that same knowledge. Uh, there's other narratives that people have used to get that. And so there are groups that are less religious but still believe in that narrative today. And so we're seeing an interesting, in some ways, a transition period. We're going to see probably not within our lifetimes, but, you know, generations down from us, we'll see whether that religious aspect morphs into something else over time in different societies, or if it continues to exist as it, as it does. 
Right. Well, I think what we structure our beliefs around will is changing and has changed, and I think it will continue to change. And yeah, you know, Socrates always said that philosophy was the the practicing of death. <laughs> Oh, that, yeah, that was, I hadn't mentioned this yet, but another, you know, if you, if you take kind of the acceptance aspect of Stoic philosophy, the ultimate expression of that is the acceptance of your own mortality, your own, you know, short time on this planet. Mm -hmm. And from that, you can, you can either take that to mean that, you know, your life is kind of pointless because it's short, or you can take the extreme opposite view, which is we only have a short amount of time. We better use it to the absolute fullest, right? Yeah. We better GTFO on with our lives. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the proper approach to Stoic philosophy is the latter, but I think that, you know, if, if you're inclined to, for the more nihilistic approach, you might you know, trend towards the former, which is unfortunate. Right. I mean, it actually, it's interesting. If you feel like life is meaningless, do you feel it actually kind of makes you more self-conscious of your own survival in a way? No, but it, but no, if it's, if it's meaningless, I don't, I don't see where, where do you get the drive to survive? I, I yeah, exactly. Uh, I guess, I guess I was thinking more, not nihilism, hedonism. Oh yeah. That, which is, I think, a form of nihilism. That there's only pleasure. There's, there's some related parts to it, but yeah, the the uh, the Stoics and the Hedonists didn't see eye to eye exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think I mentioned this book last time, the Immortality Key. But there's mm-hmm. the idea that the the true, the transcendence out of the mortal realm, basically re-entering the Garden of Eden, is is akin to realizing, to to not being afraid of death anymore. Mm-hmm. How much time do we have? Uh, about seven. Okay, re- realizing that. Um, or, or realizing that death has real, no consequence that there is no end. Pardon me. So when you live as if death is impossible, there's, there's a book called Einstein's dreams that outlines two possibilities Hmm. where if people thought they would live forever, they would just do nothing and be lazy, or they would get as, they would see themselves as having infinity to accomplish everything. Hmm. Now here's the thing, like our physical bodies definitely die. That's there's no there's no qualm about that. But we do influence everyone around us mm-hmm. in what we do. And and I think that's what gives life meaning is how much impact we have on other lives. Right. And it's it's like we don't all start from square one because if every new generation like started completely from scratch and had mm-hmm. to relearn everything, like we would never make any progress, right? Exactly. And 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 I think that's why it's impossible to have equal outcomes because no one does have an equal beginning. Even, even if you're trying to control for that through various methods, it doesn't, it, it's just not possible. Like, I think it's important to be grateful for what we have and what we do have, but acknowledging that the struggles that are placed in front of us are meant to help us grow. Yeah. It's, uh, it's that whole, you know, what, you know, the, what, you know, the obstacle is the way, you know, what, what was the obstacle becomes the way sort of mentality there. Right. Do you think that there are a lot of people who are in their, their own obstacle and therefore their own way? Uh, could you elaborate on that scenario? I'm, I'm not sure what you well, mean by that. Well, I meant like, like, you know, obviously with the whole situation that the whole world's been in where we've had to isolate, you know, yeah. we've, some people have been maybe trying to escape from themselves or realize that they were living in a cycle of escaping from themselves. Mm, yeah. And no, I think people have learned a lot about themselves. They must, may not have known before. I mean, I know I certainly did as a result of that. Yeah. Me too, man. Yeah. And so, I mean, in my case, it's been kind of a growing, cause it, again, back, back to the whole stoic philosophy, you know, at first it seems like, Oh, well, I'm, you feel like trapped at home and you feel like 
so bored mm-hmm. and you feel like and the other the other the, the, the biggest problem is when you don't know when it's going to end it, right if you because it's easier to persevere when there's an end in sight right you have like a plan yeah yeah because then you can plan for the future but when you can't even plan for the future that is that was the experience for me that kind of led to the darkest depths in a lot of ways yeah. and so once you once you finally like sort of take a step back and evaluate that aspect of your life and you realize that actually like there's so many good things about my circumstance that I'm not even seeing like I've got mm-hmm. all this extra time on my hands I've got all this extra flexibility mm-hmm. and I've got like all these skills that I could be utilizing that I'm not. Right. And so you, you start realizing, Hey, there's actually like all this good in my life that is being uncovered by this that I didn't even know. Right now. Do you think there's such a thing as toxic positivity? I think you just broke my brain. What, what, what would that be? When, when it, um, Candide wrote a, uh, he was a, a, a satirist in France back in the day, but he, yeah. he used to write on, he used to criticize people who saw everything as good because it existed. Because clearly there are some things that when we see it happen, like a murder or, mm. or a, a rape, a crime against humanity, a genocide, we see that as, as generally being pretty bad. Mm. How can you say that that's good, right? Yeah, well, again, it's, it's yeah, the... the, 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 the the, the, I guess what I'm saying the nature the nature the problem there is you have to you have to get you have to not you have to dissociate the judgments from the the events and from the facts of life itself and the the you have to realize that the good the meaning is maintained in like how you interpret like because basically there's there's no changing that mm-hmm. so like judging that as bad is not going to, to benefit you. It's not going to get you any, right. anything good. Ju- so judging so, something as bad is the opposite of accepting it. Right. And so you have to, you have to accept it and you basically have to look at what's the most positive spin, not spin, but the most positive like reaction I can give to that. So how can I utilize that to make myself better? Right. And that doesn't take away from the fact that it might cause certain adversity and all that sort of thing. And it could be that the way to, to make society better could involve consequences for whoever did that. Right. It's not, it's, right. that, it's not, it's not precluding the fact that there needs to be justice and that sort of thing. Right. Exactly. And I, th- yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a, that's a good point. I, I think justice is, hmm. it, it's so interesting. Justice. I mean, I, I kind of want almost want to do a whole another podcast on the topic of what is justice. Yeah. We, we've touched on like morality and ethics just barely, but maybe we should dig in deeper on some of that. Yeah. But, but I guess to, to tie that, justice loosely into what we're talking about now it's it's an injustice to uh, you know to yourself to look at whatever situation you're in through through the lens of this is this is awful mm-hmm. i mean it's okay to acknowledge and accept the challenge that's in front of you but with yeah. but without a judgment and so yeah it's it's kind of like the difference between failing and failure Yes. So, you know, you can, you can fail. You can, you can like not achieve what you set out to achieve. That does not necessarily make you into a failure. You know, when you put, when you put in, when you associate that as being like an attribute of yourself, that is like the first step in a, in a, in a downward spiral slash negative feedback loop. Right. Right. So it, it, that's, that's kind of the first step to like overcoming adversity is, is it, it's almost, it's not kind of, it's not exactly relabeling it, but it's contextualizing it correctly. Right. 
I, I, I want to go back to the, uh, to the addict stuff, the 12 step AA rules, because one of their first steps is for you to admit that you are an addict, Yeah, which is a lot closer to saying that I'm a failure rather than saying I'm failing, mm. you know? I'm addicting. You people don't say I'm addicting right now, but they say, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm using right now. I'm in, I'm in my addiction. Yeah. But one of the things I always struggled with with the 12 step program and nothing against anybody who's benefited from it, by the way, I think it's a great program that's helped many people. But for someone like me who thinks about philosophy and overthinks too much, one of the things I had a hard time getting around the fact was you are saying that I am followed by an absolute judgment. Mm, yeah. And those tend to be permanent. So yeah. if, if you tend to just, be very careful with I am and then whatever falls after. Very much so. I think we got to wrap it up there. All right. That was Olympian Method, a pretty personal podcast. Wolf, thanks for sharing. I know what couldn't, I know it's not easy for you. It's not easy for me. It's not easy for a lot of people out there, but thanks for having the courage to share. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate you setting this up. Thank you. Absolutely. Until next time. Bye.